Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. This week, Dracula's Daughter from 1936. Yes, the Dracula movie you have never seen. <laughs> Look at me. What do you see in my eyes? Death. Do you like jewels, Lily? This is very old and very beautiful. Please don't come any closer. I... is weak, Dr. Goss, growing weaker. All your skill can't help her now. She's under a spell that can be broken only by me. Or death. I am Dracula's daughter. I had an eventful morning this morning. Oh. I have two cats that are still kittens, technically. I think they were born in June and we're recording this in December. So I guess that's still technically kittens. Oh, yeah, there's still very much kittens at six months. Mm -hmm. But one of them is like as big as a cat. They're Siberians. And so oh, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're huge. And this morning I was working on my notes for this show in bed with my laptop open. And one of them decided to jump over the screen. Like I didn't see it coming. Incoming cat over the screen landed on my face. I think its intent was to go to the headboard. And so I have like a three or four inch scratch oh. from my, the corner of my mouth to my jawbone. One of the many reasons I'm reminded every time we do this podcast, why we are an audio podcast only, even though I know we could have way more viewership if we were on YouTube. But this morning I ran for the bathroom. It was just bleeding everywhere. I oh, was like no. using Kleenex and stuff like that to try to staunch the blood flow. It looks like a crime scene in the bathroom right now. I didn't yeah. have time to clean it up. So, um, oh my gosh, uh, that was my hello, wake up morning. The same cat I was super happy with yesterday because. He brought his little mouse toy to me and I threw it and he brought it back and I oh, threw it again <laughs> and he brought it back again and I threw it again. And I just, just went on for six or seven times. I didn't want to do it too many times because my last cat liked to play fetch. And one time I played fetch like a hundred times and finally she was like, yeah, we're never playing that game again. So I <laughs> so, didn't want her to get tired of it. <laughs> so I don't want him to get tired of it. So it's so cool having a cat that fetches. Apparently, they're very dog-like cats to begin with. I didn't know this was such a thing. And then I Googled them on Wikipedia. And there's a page called Puppy Cat. And it's Puppy about cat. it's about breeds of cats that are like dogs. And apparently, Siberians are one of them. My cat has become incredibly jealous of the new baby. 
Aww. and <laughs> seems to have no concept of okay you you're going to be displaced for a while because I definitely used to talk to my cat as if she were the dearest closest living being to my soul and Aww. now there's this other little being that's kind of gotten in between us and so I'll be nursing Eleanor Eleanor will be in my arms and the cat will come and try to sit directly on top of Eleanor <laughs> okay to be next to me now wait a minute wait a minute we See, I see the root of this problem right now. It's Eleanor and the cat. We need to say Eve's name here. Yes. Okay. So the evening, who goes by Evie for short, is a magnificent cat. And she is also a dog-like cat, just in the sense that she is very affectionate. She follows me from room to room. If she doesn't know where I am, she will meow for me and wait for me to respond. So <laughs> we have this, we have this bond, Evie and I, but just like right now. She just can't be right on top of my chest or, you know, putting her paws on my throat to wake me up, to feed her, you know, all of the ways that cats show how much they love you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I have to know, like, when your cats meow, guys, like, do you meow back? Because I totally do. <laughs> I yes. always meow back at my cats. <laughs> no, it's just like I wouldn't talk baby talk to a baby. I like talk to them seriously. I'm like, yeah, what do you want? You know? <laughs> I'm now back if it's if you know we're not doing anything like if Evie and I are in the same room and she just kind of meows at me for no reason then I will meow back at her just like just like a nod then, <laughs> yeah just like a call and response kind of thing but if if it's clear that Evie wants something from me then I speak to her in mm -hmm. English to be like Evie I'm in here or you know, Evie, you lie. You've already been fed today. You know, <laughs> Evie lies to me all the time. Yeah. So. yeah. On the animal front, I don't know if you guys know this, but we are we are up to three Frenchies and two cats. That is ridiculous. I know. I think well, you need to stop. <laughs> I know. Well, unfortunately, we had to say goodbye to our Great Dane Pearl recently. Oh, no. Yeah, she was a 12-year-old Great Dane, though. She oh, that's, that's pretty good for for. Don't they yeah. live for like seven years normally or something? Yeah, they like if they hit double digits, it's like amazing. So, yeah. Well, let's just get into this. Dracula's Daughter. This is a 1936 film. Uh, so it's it's about five good five years after the Lugosi Dracula before we finally get a Dracula sequel. Rather than a background to the year, I'm going to give a background to some of the other movies that came out, specifically the other horror films that came out leading up to this, because The Hayes Code, which we've talked about before on the podcast, came into being around 1934 and possibly specifically having to do with horror movies, much the way that the Comics Code came in in the 1950s largely due to horror comics. Here's some of the films that came out in the year before Dracula's Daughter. April 22nd, 1935, The Bride of Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff, is released. This is one of the high watermarks for the Universal Horror series and for horror movies in general. So it really opens the floodgates. May 1st, we get Todd Browning, doing a film for MGM called Mark of the Vampire, which starred Bela Lugosi. That opened in New York, May 1st of 1935. May 13th of 1935, Werewolf of London is released. June 6th, The 39 Steps, a thriller, is released in the UK. 
July 8th, the horror film The Raven, which starred both Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, premiered. July 12th, Mad Love, starring Peter Lorre, is released. July 15th, The Black Room, starring Boris Karloff, is released. I'm mostly only talking about the major horror films. There are a lot of B-horror films that come out, and I'm going to mention one of those. The Sea Fiend comes out September 5th, which is about a vanishing ship. The reason I mention it is because later that same year, November 14th, Phantom Ship, about a vanishing ship, is released in the UK. That one stars Bela Lugosi. So Lugosi, Karloff, they are busy at this time. Um <laughs> In 1936, in January, we get The Invisible Race, starring Boris Karloff. March 2nd, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, is released in the UK. March 14th, The Walking Dead, starring Boris Karloff, was released. And then May 11th, Dracula's Daughter is released. I figured our audience would be interested in knowing what the path to a sequel looked like, given the success of the original, but also it's not like there was a whole book series of Dracula-related content to borrow from. So they had to more or less make it up from scratch. And the scramble to get the rights to make a sequel started almost immediately after the success of the first film. Universal figured out that Dracula's Guest, the short story I think we mentioned in another podcast, is really the only other Dracula-related source material out there. And so there was a little bit of a bidding war back and forth between Universal and MGM to secure the rights to this. I want to make a correcting the record here right now, because I believe in the podcast where we talked about Dracula's Guest, from my memory, I thought it was Jonathan Harker's visit or someone visiting before I believe Dracula's guest was actually the Renfield visit to Transylvania, to Dracula's castle. So I wanted to clear that up, especially since that sort of was what we got in Dracula rather than Harker. But there we go. This is the mixed up world of the rights to Bram Stoker's novel. Yes. Anyway, they managed to buy the rights from Stoker's widow, Florence, for $500. And then if they ended up making the film, it was going to cost them five grand, which sounds like basically nothing given, <laughs> given the success of this franchise. But there was a ticking clock associated with this. MGM was going to get the rights back from Universal if Universal didn't start production by 1935. So... Creating the film ended up being a little bit of a rush. They were also against the clock because they had a great deal of trouble actually getting a script approved by the production code administration. First person who took a crack at this was John L. Balderston, who had previously worked on the 1931 Dracula and also on Frankenstein. And his approach was to try to craft a script that tied up some of the loose ends of the original film. And that intention did follow through in later drafts by other screenwriters. But one of the main problems was Balderston's adaptation involved a lot of characters from the original Dracula, and they didn't have the rights to all of those characters. They only had the rights to things that showed up in Dracula's guest or stuff they were going to make up. So that script was a no-go. The next version, written by a guy, last name Sheriff, 
involved two engaged couples who go on a holiday to Transylvania, and the men fall under the thrall of Dracula's daughter. And then Van Helsing arrives in time to destroy the Countess and attend the double wedding. So a nice happy ending. <laughs> this version was submitted on August 28th, 1935. Remember that they had to start production by October. And uh, the British Board of Film Censors rejected it, saying that Dracula's Daughter would require half a dozen languages to adequately express its beastliness. <laughs> the Production Code Association, <laughs> headed up by Joseph Breen, said that the script contains countless offensive stuff, which makes the picture utterly impossible for approval under the production code. What's hilarious is we're watching this after having watched The Devils. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's amazing how strict the code was. So Sheriff attempted multiple rewrites, but was rejected by the censors every time. Uh, they managed to get an extension to start the production in February 1936, and they were then able to put forward a third screenwriter, Garrett Fort, who met with the production code officials along with Universal executive Harry Zayner in that February, during which Universal was asked to just make some minor tweaks, mostly to the scene where the Countess asks for a young uh, wastrel to pose for her. And we'll talk about that scene in greater detail, but they wanted to make sure that there was no indication that a, quote, perverse sexual desire on the part of Maria or an attempted sexual attack by her upon Lily. So they, <laughs> in the original draft, apparently it was maybe a little bit more explicitly lesbian overtones, etc. cetera. Uh, you dropped the L word already. We're only like... Five minutes into the podcast. Okay. Well, I should mention- that's not, Like, that's a huge can of worms we're going to have to open yes, up. but it's because one of the other major source materials that they were drawing on is an 1872 gothic novella called Camilla. Camilla. Camilla, yes. Written by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. And I wanted to do a book report on this, but I discovered that I've lent my copy of Carmilla out to somebody. It's one of those things where like, I loved this so much that immediately I went to one of my first girlfriends. I'm like, you have to read this. And then obviously they never did. And I never got my book back. But You are yeah. making a promise to the podcast by bringing this up to our listeners that there will be a book report on Camilla <laughs> like later on in a future episode. All right. Well, if we cover any of the film adaptations of Carmilla, I will be sure to come prepared with notes. That covers a lot of the background. Only other thing to note is that Gloria Holden, who was cast as Drax's daughter in this, was really wary of participating because she saw what had happened to Bella Lugosi, who became like synonymous with Dracula. And it was very difficult for him to escape that in his career. And she saw the same thing happening for her. And what's kind of interesting is that that like slight revulsion about playing the character or the reluctance actually kind of works in her favor and sort of made her performance really believable as this distant, aloof vampire. Yeah, Gloria Holden, I thought, actually was fantastic in this. And I hadn't seen her in anything else. Did yeah. you see anything come across about an accident that happened on set? No, tell me about the accident. Oh, now I don't have the information, but apparently there was an accident on set. I think the producer was hurt somehow. Gosh, I don't know. I, I would have to look it up. But yeah, there was an accident on set. There was a rumor that it happened on Friday the 13th. And there was a YouTuber that talked about it. 
you can look it up on YouTube. There's a whole video about it. Um, but he talked about how there was an accident on set. There was a rumor that it was on the 13th, but the YouTuber like broke it down by production dates and everything. And he was like, there's no way it happened on Friday the 13th. But, you know, the accident actually really did happen and stopped production for a hot second. Um, but then they got back to it. So, yeah, look it up. It's an interesting story. I had no idea. It's not Wizard of Oz level accident. You know, nobody <laughs> died, but I, I think the director may have gotten hurt. I have some of our lazy Internet research real quick. According to the IMDB, which for us is a trusted source. Wikipedia does not consider it a trusted source. And never mind the fact that it's Wikipedia that doesn't consider it a trusted source. <laughs> Wikipedia, not a trusted source. But what are you even talking about, Eric? Wikipedia <laughs> does not consider the IMDb Internet Movie Database to be a trusted source. We do. So according to the IMDb, director Lambert Hillier was injured on the ninth day of production, according to publicity Friday the 13th, when a freestanding fill light toppled on his head. Nearly Eric. half a day of shooting was lost when he was briefly hospitalized. However, filming started on February 4th, 1936 and finished on March 10th, 1936. And there was a Thursday the 13th, but no Friday the 13th in that time interval. So cool. Nice, nice uh, little tip there, Rosie. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Do you have any suggested food or drink pairings for us for this film? Yes, I do. There was a scene where Mr. Garth, I guess it was his his wife or their maid or whatever, asked him if he was ready for his barley water. And I was like, barley water? What is that? I uh, call barley... it beer, but you can call it barley water. <laughs> well, this isn't beer. This is like a, kind of a tea made from barley. And it has a lot of health benefits to it. It's good for your kidneys if you have UTI. And it also keeps your skin clear and stuff. In India, it's a regular practice to drink this every day. I mean, it's basically a tea made from barley. It reminds me a lot of gruel. If you've ever had gruel, my grandma was German and that was like one of the few German things that she carried with her <laughs> through our family was whenever we were stomach sick, we would get gruel, whether it was going out the other end or going out the front that would settle the stomach. And I'm telling you it worked. But the barley water is one of those things that you can kind of just drink every day and it has health benefits to it. It's quarter cup of barley, hot barley, cold barley or pearl barley, three cups of water, a teaspoon of rock sugar or pink salt as needed, two tablespoons of lemon juice. You add barley to a large bowl, pick and discard any debris, holes or stones. Pour water and rinse them well at least four times in plenty of water. Rub and rinse them well. Drain the water completely. You can soak them for like seven hours before you even make them. And the, apparently that avoids gas. <laughs> if you if you do it that way, <laughs> you won't be uh, you won't be so rooting and tooting, I guess. And then you cook it in a pot and you strain it. I found the recipe online on IndianHealthyRecipes.com. I remember that line in here and and it's good to know that there is like something that if you drink every day, mm -hmm. it has health effects because I've been hearing for years about how you should have a glass of wine every day and I never drink wine. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> yes, you do drink. Nice. I, nice. I saw your Facebook pictures from when you came into town, bro. <laughs> <laughs> this movie opens right 
on the heels of the ending of the Bela Lugosi Dracula and Von Helsing. He's called Von Helsing here rather than Van Helsing. No explanation for that. Von Helsing. Frankenstein. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Roderick Frankenstein. (laughs) So Professor Von Helsing is arrested by a couple of bobbies who happen upon the scene at the end of Dracula, where he has just staked Dracula through the heart. First, they find Renfield, whose neck is broken at the bottom of the stairs, and then they find the body of Dracula, and they ask Von Helsing if he knows anything about it, and he says, yeah, I did it. So, <laughs> so they, yeah, they, I did it. <laughs> they, they take him into custody, where he's taken to Scotland Yard and interviewed by Inspector Humphrey. This is an interesting scene, because we now have von helsing trying to explain to scotland yard what a vampire is yes so i know in vampire movies this has to happen in every vampire movie that has come since but this is the earliest film i can recall where the someone has to explain that vampires do exist so there's a bit of a debate about that he's in sort of legal hot water and they advise him to get a lawyer and he refuses a lawyer in favor of his former star student Dr. Jeffrey Garth, who I think is a psychologist. I don't know. I don't know what the doctor is. Yes, it seemed like he's not a scientist and not a medical physician. So sort of the same kind of doctor that Van Helsing is, like a doctor of letters of vampires. (laughs) Well, a parapsychologist. I think he's probably a psychologist. Like, I think this is like a Dr. Seward type guy, but they couldn't use Dr. Seward. So I think that this is Dr. Seward, but just renamed. That's my theory. Meanwhile, Countess Zaleska arrives with her servant Sandor, and they steal Dracula's body from the one guy, you know, they hypnotize the one guy that was there to guard it, and they steal Dracula's body and cremate him in a ritual, which we find out is designed to break the curse of the Draculas, which is on Countess Zaleska. So she is what in vampire lore has been come to be called a dampire, which is a vampire that is born a vampire rather than made into a vampire, which apparently is sometimes a thing. Like I think Blade is in the Marvel universe is a dampire or something like that. They call him a day walker because he can walk in the day. Uh, cause he, or he's a vampire human hybrid. I don't know. Anyway, that's what she is. Or maybe it's just a curse. Maybe it is in fact a curse. She thinks it's broken the curse. And finally she can be a normal woman. And she's talking to Xandor and she talks about the shadows and, you know, <laughs> of evening. And he says, yes, evil shadows. And she's like, no, peaceful shadows. And she says, like, listen to the flapping of wings. And she's like, yes, the wings of bats. And she's like, no, the wings of birds. <laughs> and, you know, they go through this whole rigmarole where she's trying to be. And then finally is like, why do you deny what you are? And then finally she like goes out hunting that night. Okay. Now. I have heard a ton of stuff about this being like a lesbian, like metaphor film, whatever. I don't know. It's really popular among lesbians and LGBTQ types. Anne Rice mentioned that it was a huge influence on her writing. So this is the first time we get some hints of that here. But 
I don't get it. All right, now, cisgendered straight guy here, so I don't know if I'm missing something, but to me, I don't really get it. Because when she then goes hunting, it's not for a woman. Her victim is a man. So we opened the lesbian can of worms already. So what say you guys? What's going on here? I think the tell is when she did have the model that was her victim. The tell is always the soft lighting and the filter. You know, the romantic (laughs) soft lighting and the filter that always appears during a romantic scene. And it appeared when nothing romantic was going on, but it was there. I kind of feel like, yeah, there could have been a little bit of a nod there, but they couldn't have too much of a nod because of censorship. But the soft lighting is the dead giveaway for me. She's not going after the doctor as a romantic object. Like she really does seem to be like in the beginning, like I want to be free of this. And when her compulsion is really driving her, she is seeking female victims. I mean, she's got this cool manservant. And I think the fact that she and the manservant have like nothing, like there's no chemistry. It's the fag hag thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's totally her fag hag. (laughs) He's her cover girl. So, so, but when she goes hunting that first night, she chooses a male victim. Then she meets Dr. Garth at a party and asks for his help to cure her obsessive compulsive disorder or make her normal or whatever. And he tells her to put temptation in front of her like an alcoholic that keeps a bottle of liquor in the house just to remind himself of the temptation she's like if you can overcome that that's how you fix it and so that's when she asks sandor to go find her a model so when she's actually asked to put temptation in her way she chooses a female victim so on the Mm. first night was it just like trying to prove that she's a straight vampire by going after a guy you know <laughs> she was know. playing it straight that night hey <laughs> you know what's kind of interesting about this addiction metaphor is depending on your view of addiction this either reinforces the idea that being a vampire is a disease it's outside of your control and there's no moral blame there, basically. Like you're managing your addiction the best you can. You have to sort of surrender to a higher power in order to overcome it. Like it's very interesting from that side. But I think in the context of 1936, when this film came out, it would have definitely been seen like vampirism is a moral failing (laughs) that you should (laughs) be able to like you know there's sort of a pray the gay away thing going on here yeah. with, with the vampirism <laughs> you just but... need jesus <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i i like i like the, how the addiction metaphor plays on a couple different levels here so anything else about the infamous model scene i um, like how they went from like you knew she was going to be attacked but they never showed it they just panned up to that weird animal hanging on the wall or whatever that was but you knew what was going on. I love that about old movies. Sometimes I fall in the camp of, we don't need to see all the guts and gore as long as you just let us know what's going on. Sometimes I, I, I'm in a mood. I'm like, I just don't want to see all that gory crap right now. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I, I think this kind of plays into a general thing about this character that the Countess is in real contrast with the two other 
main female characters we see. Different from the model that she chooses because the model is kind of helpless and weak and prone to suggestion, that sort of thing. But also the Countess is in such stark contrast with Janet, the secretary, like right I from the get-go. Yeah, and it's I'm, they draw attention to it in a couple places. Like the doctor remarks like, oh, this is the first woman's flat I've been in with less than 20 mirrors in it. And <laughs> we, the audience, know why there are no mirrors there. But it's just one of many ways that the Countess, as someone who is slow, deliberate, calculating, reserved, and mysterious in a sexy, melancholy kind of way, is set way apart from the flirtatious, petty, wholesome other female characters. I mean, like the secretary especially is just seems like the most annoying person in the whole world. <laughs> I know, like the prank call she was making, that was cracking me up. Like, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the purpose? But okay. <laughs> well, she didn't want Garth to get involved with Zaleska. Well, that, and did you notice the fur coat on that secretary? It is the most enormous, luxurious. She's a baron's daughter, right? They, yes, like what is she up... doing having a job of any kind? <laughs> I know, I right? think she that that's what lets her have a job. Um, that's true, yeah. Maybe they're so... paying the doctor to like, please give her something to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, you know, what What else are you going to do with such an outspoken woman in the 30s? Yeah, yeah. The model is taken to the hospital and the doctor and Janet, who's the secretary, are quarreling when he gets called away to come look at this body. And there are two marks on her neck. And so he immediately calls Von Helsing. Shortly after that, Countess Zaleska comes to the doctor and tells him she failed the temptation test. He tells her that she just needs to tell him the whole truth. And she begs him to leave for the continent with her. So when he gets called away to see the patient again, Janet shows up and Zaleska and Sandor take her hostage. They basically kidnap her. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, they hypnotize the patient and learn a few clues about what's going on before she dies. Zaleska flees with Janet, and the doctor summons the rest of everybody else. Oh, by the way, Von Helsing's not in this anymore. You know, we yeah. talk about him, but we never see him again. So the whole thing about him being arrested, that's never resolved. We have no idea. He could be <laughs> in prison right now, for all we know. He's probably still rotten in jail. <laughs> Chaos is happening. And remind me to bring that up again at the end, because I have an idea for this. The doctor charters an airplane, which is a biplane in these days. I didn't know you could charter a biplane. Like, he's like, I'll just fly my own biplane there and fly, you know, I'll like a rent a car, right? <laughs> <laughs> when the lights come on at Dracula's castle, because Zaleska and Xander are home, the peasants freak out. So the doctor has to hire a carriage to get as far as the Borgo Pass. We've been down this road before, literally. <laughs> Count Zaleska wants Garth not for a cure anymore, but to be her partner, which ticks off Sandor because he thought he was going to get the eternal life vampire treatment. And so he tries to kill him when he arrives at the castle, fails, and shoots 
another arrow at him. He's got a bow and arrow and accidentally kills Countess Zaleska. Shoots her through the heart with an arrow, basically a wooden stake, which brings up the point. Why doesn't everyone just carry a bow and arrow to kill vampires? Like, <laughs> why makes sense. Like, get close enough to have to stake them in the heart with a hammer and all that? Why not just shoot them from a distance away with a bow and arrow? You know? I, I mean, I wonder, I wonder whether this is like an error in vampire mythology that was... Uh, I didn't read about whether this was Hayes Code related problem, but I bet you that putting a stake through a female vampire's heart at the time that this film was made would have been seen as like too sexual or something like that they that or too yeah too violent too sexual so like the arrow is like a good way for a female character to die. Well, yeah, it's actually it. pretty smart. Like, I think eventually <laughs> they do end up using it in Buffy. I think she carries yeah. a crossbow. But yeah, I'm thinking, why did it take so long? You know, because it's going to be another 60 years before Buffy comes along and starts using a bow. I love that they returned to the castle from the original movie. This made me so psyched to see the castle again, even with the cobwebs. The cobwebs still up exactly as they were in the previous film that he had to slash through instead of magically transport behind anyway i (laughs) when when we showed up back at the castle i was psyched awesome i liked it it was entertaining it it kept my attention it kind of reminded me of watching the old-timey films with my grandma growing up so i really enjoyed having that feeling while i was watching the movie and also it's nice to see a female main character in a movie as old as that Women were still very much considered to be second-class citizens and things to be ogled and used as decoration and to cook and clean up after men. So it's kind of nice to see a female lead that is strong, confident, powerful, even though she was evil. It still was pretty cool. Um, So, yeah, you know, I liked it. I mean, she wasn't totally evil. I mean, she didn't want to be evil. She started the film out, like, fighting the urge to kill. You know, I really enjoyed it. And I always get a big kick out of those soft, foggy scenes that they always do only on, you know, usually only on women to make her look prettier or more attractive to the man in that scene. But it always cracks me up because sometimes it just seems random. (laughs) And I don't know why that amuses me, but it just does. So it's interestingly, it's called a haze filter, which is hilarious because the haze code was the production code that they had to use the filter because of spelled the same way. Is it spelled I think, the same way? I think it's spelled differently. It's Hayes, H-A-Y-S is the is the name of the code after the oh. name of the person, but it's a Hayes filter, H-A-Z-E, because it creates a haze. I agree with Rosie. Love me a femme fatale, and this is a great example of one. I also think making a sequel to Dracula is, you know, a tall order. And I think they did a good job of balancing like honoring the flavor of the original and keeping it in universe and you know really picking up like right where the original left off with a convincing story while also creating something that wasn't just a total rehash of the original with different characters there was some interesting complicated tension caused by the fact that the main character was a woman and trying to resist the vampire path so Yeah, two thumbs up from me. I hadn't seen it before and was really glad I did. I just had a random thought. If this movie would have been made today, 
I feel like she would have showed up because Dracula was killed. Most of the time in vampire lore, if your parent vampire dies, you feel it and you're immediately drawn to wherever they are. Even if you're living separate lives across the world, you're right there. And I feel like if that movie would have been made today, she would have showed up for that reason and not just randomly showed up like nobody knew that Dracula had a daughter. Okay. I think she did show up for that reason. Didn't did she? she? I mean, because... she she was there to cremate the body. That's why her and Sander showed up. Kind of so, gave me the vibe more of like she was showing up to plan his funeral and stuff rather than showing up because, you know, she felt in her soul that her father had died. That's possible. It could go either way on that. If this were made today is an interesting statement because rumors are it is being remade right now as we oh, speak. Awesome. Uh, you say awesome. But hang on. It may not be. Yeah, Your who whole... are they casting? This is what I want to know. Who right. are they now, casting yeah, exactly. as the Countess? <laughs> now, there's very little known about this right now. It's all sort of rumors and speculation. But from what I've heard, anyway... You remember your whole subtle thing about like old movies being subtle and stuff like that. The team that has been chose to remake it or has gotten the rights to it or whatever is the Walt uh, Disney Company. No, no, (laughs) no, it's the people who brought you the Scream reboot. So the Mm. expectation is that it's going to be a lot more gory and action oriented in my opinion, what I would do with this film, I would start it as an actual courtroom drama kind of thing and play out that whole Van Helsing story where it's like he gets arrested and how do you defend that in court? And like have that whole thing be the catalyst to the story and sort of play that out and have Countess Zaleska called in, you know, because she is the next of kin, you know, all of that. And then from there, you spin off into the Dracula's daughter story. I think that that would be really cool. It would be a lot more subtle than like what I expect that we'll get from the makers of Scream 6 or whatever they're on now. Watch them put Matthew Lillard in the movie. (laughs) Was he in Scream 6? I can't remember. I, I'm not a big Scream fan. I just know he was in that. Jackie I think he Willard, is but... supposed to be in it. <laughs> oh, God, that's so funny. He actually does a really good job in Good Girls. Just to give Matthew Lillard credit. But, you know, I just think it would be funny if they're like try to throw him in a vampire movie. <laughs> I'm mostly bummed. If it's the Scream team behind it, then that means we're going to get a B-list actress in the role. I want to see Kate Blanchett do this. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, good that would be call. that's a good good casting right there. I don't know if that's what we're gonna get, but um, no, I not with the scream folks behind it, but I don't know. I mean, I think Kate Blanchett would do vampires, right? Maybe. She was a Marvel villainess and she was in Lord of the Rings. She's got some geek cred. Oh yeah. So from joeblow.com. Another uh, reputable source. (laughs) Yeah. April 11th of this year, they say say, the filmmaking team that made Ready or Not Scream 2022 and Scream 6, the Scream has come on board a Universal Monsters project that was previously going by the title Dracula's Daughter. So... Yeah, this is by no means the only site that reported this back around the spring. 
Universal indicated to the Hollywood Reporter that the project falls in the lane of such films as Lee Wanell's The Invisible Man and the upcoming Renfield, no longer upcoming, but Adam McKay's take on a Dracula side character, movies that provide, quote, a unique take on a legendary monster lore and will represent a fresh new direction for how to celebrate these classic characters, unquote. Very scant information, but there we go. Let's hope that they do something good with it because this one is definitely, definitely ripe for a remake. If you're going to ma- remake a film, I've always said remake a film that could you can really improve on. And too often they take a real classic film like King Kong or Psycho or something and they, they try to remake that. And I'm like, you're going to fail because those are nearly perfect in their original form. Take a film that could really use an update. And I think... As much as I liked Dracula's Daughter, I think it could use an update. I give it a thumbs up, but not as high as I would for most of the other Universal monster films. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off. When nothing romantic was going on, but it was there, so I think, I think, now I'm a straight per. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a cisgender, you know, straight woman, maybe a little bit, I don't know. Anyway, so, <laughs> you know, I can see where they can get it from.